So what does David Icke do? He talks about the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, these global elitists, these power structures, all real meat and potatoes, something you can bite into. And then you've got David Icke at the end of all this. He says, by the way, they're blood-drinking lizards. It's like a turd in the punch bowl. Boy, oh boy, today's guest, David Icke, although he's never appeared on the Times list of the world's most 100 influential people, based on those criteria, he certainly should be. He should be one of those people that year after year is on that list. When you look at the amazing achievements of David Icke, Above all, I think David Icke represents a political threat. He is uh, a new age guru, uh, and unfortunately, uh, his philosophy is tainted with anti-Semitism. This is the thing, when people hear David Icke, conspiracy theorist, they, they, they say him in that serious mode, yeah. but he's actually just a lovely guy. But do you still think the royal family were shape-shifting lizards? Yes, I do. Hello everyone and welcome to this new series where I'll be taking a look at the work of everybody's favourite conspiracy theorist, David Icke. As you can hear from the introductory clips, David divides opinion. The very fact that one man can give rise to such diverse interpretations is reason alone to take interest. How is this even possible? Fellow conspiracist Alex Jones famously called him a turd in the punch bowl. While Skeptico's Alex Akiris has him as one of the most original thinkers of our age. Is he a political iconoclast liberating minds? Or a court leader imprisoning them? Is he a spiritual visionary awakening people to their true nature? Or a new age guru peddling woo? Should he have a global platform on which to proclaim his ideas? Or be censored for the public good? And does he really believe the Queen is a shape-shifting reptile? I mean, it's so outrageous you can see why Jewish groups prick their ears up at that one. Why? Why am I doing this, I hear you ask? Would my time not be better spent elsewhere, volunteering at a cat sanctuary or something? Maybe so, but I've always found iconoclasts fascinating, and none more so than David Icke. This has been the case ever since I strolled into a bookshop in the summer of 2001 and plucked his then magnum opus the biggest secret, off the shelf. I was instantly captivated. There's a big secret and I don't know about it? What could that be? I found myself being initiated into knowledge of the Babylonian Brotherhood, the secret force behind all the empires that have risen and fallen through the centuries and millennia. By the end of the book, and in stark contrast to this darkness, I'd encountered a mystical vision of a universe brought into being by an infinite and all-loving mind. David had dealt me both a temporal and spiritual red pill. Had he been a fiction writer, we might have declared him a genius for creating a modern Gnostic mythos. He might have been spoken of in the same breath as writers such as Philip K. Dick. Amazon and Netflix would be competing to serialise his work. As it is, he blurs the line between fiction and fact myth and reality, and is consigned to being a crank. This blurring, however, might make his writing all the more powerful for not allowing us to rest our heads at night thinking, it's only just a story. I've explored these philosophical themes in my Contemplating Conspiracy series, in particular episode 4, Do Mention the Reptiles, 
so I won't repeat them all here. What I am planning on doing is reading David's books in order over the coming months and potentially years. There are a lot of them and they're pretty fat. I'll then draw out and comment on some of the more salient points on this podcast. I am of course interested in the value of the ideas. Do they offer penetrating insight into the nature of reality? Or should they be consigned to the rubbish bin of history? Beyond this, I'm fascinated by the question I don't think has been asked enough of David. The question of how. How did an English football player turn sports broadcaster become a prominent environmentalist? How did that environmentalist become convinced he was communicating with spirits who'd selected him for a special mission in the world? How did that spiritualist, after making a series of failed earthquake predictions, come to believe a vast global conspiracy had been going on since the days of Babylon? And what about the reptiles? How did a prominent conspiracy theorist end up proclaiming that the queen and her mother shapeshift into blood-drinking, child-sacrificing lizard people? I mean, seriously, how? Does anyone wonder? We could just say David's mad, but that's a bit of a cop-out, excusing us from any further inquiry. Maybe it's all a grift which he periodically needs to amp up to keep flogging his books. But it's a very strange thing to do for a living. He'd have been better off staying at the BBC. He could have had Gary Lineker's job by now. Was he the victim of a secret service plot to discredit him and all the conspiracy theorists by association? Was it the deep state's way of neutralising him prior to the September 11th attacks? The biggest conspiracy of them all? How do we explain all those unconnected people who he claims approached him from the four corners of the earth suddenly telling tales of, well, tales, lizard tales emerging from human buttocks as they shapeshift into reptilian form? And should we even include the possibility that it might all be literally true? Well, maybe, but one of the approaches I'll be taking is to see some of David's positions as being perhaps symbolically, but not literally true. He is utilising myth to paint a more accurate picture of the world than facts alone can present. To be clear, David would reject this interpretation, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should. There are some of his older books which I do not have and cannot get, at least not without parting with large sums of money. We'll have to skip his first effort, It's a Tough Game Son, on the challenges of becoming a professional football player, and It Doesn't Have to Be Like This, on green politics. In this episode, I'll principally look at his 1991 book, The Truth Vibrations. There are three books written between that one and 1993's Healing the World, which I don't have. Unfortunately, one of them is his autobiography, In the Light of Experience, which would have been very handy. Fortunately, whoever wrote his Wikipedia page did have a copy, so we will trust them to have transcribed it correctly and begin there. David Vaughan Ike was born in Leicester, that's in the middle of England, on the 29th of April 1952. This makes him a Taurus and just shy of 70 years old at the time of recording. He was the middle child with a brother on either side. He describes his family as being poor and his early childhood home was actually demolished as part of a slum clearance in the mid-50s. He recalls having to duck and cover when the councilman came to collect the rent. He didn't pay attention in school but found he was a good football player, which he saw as potentially a road out of poverty. He was a goalkeeper and made the fascinating observation that his position suited the loner in him 
and gave him a sense of living on the edge between hero and villain. Throughout his life, David has always been something of a lone researcher, both loved and reviled in equal measure. So it's amazing to see that pattern present right at the start. He did succeed in becoming a professional goalkeeper, however was forced into retirement at the young age of 21 due to the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. He embarked on a new career in journalism, ultimately becoming a sports presenter for the BBC and a household name across Britain. And this is something that I found surprises Americans and younger British people. David Icke was potentially more famous before he became a conspiracy theorist, at least in Britain anyway. In August 1990, his contract with the BBC was terminated when he initially refused to pay Margaret Thatcher's poll tax. He did ultimately pay up, but his announcement that he was willing to go to prison rather than do so caused problems for the BBC's impartiality clause. It was at that time, in the late 80s, he became involved in green politics. David consistently had an ability to assimilate information quickly and became a spokesman for the Green Party within six months of joining. He then went on to write his environmentalist book, It Doesn't Have to Be Like This. And that takes us up to the start of the truth vibrations, from TV celebrity to world visionary, and where all the trouble began. In this book, David explains how green politics led him down a road into spirituality, getting him to ask questions that had never really occurred to him before. What's the reason for our existence? Why are we here? What happens next? He came to be interested in spiritualism and felt he was being guided by invisible beings. He also concluded that humanity was on the preface of a great transformation. Changes that began in the mid-1960s were about to accelerate through the 1990s and beyond. He termed the energy driving this transformation the truth vibrations writing that they had been commissioned to take the spiritual truths out of the shadows, off the fringes, and onto the centre stage. Let's take a listen to David reflecting back on this period. What happened to me is I had a, an extraordinary um, experience or series of experiences in the early 1990s. I um, was a television presenter and a national spokesman for the British Green Party. And... Um, Suddenly, um, I felt over 1989 that there was a, a presence in the room whenever I was alone. Um, and it became more and more tangible as 1989 unfolded. It was bizarre, really, because um, the Green Party in Britain had a, their biggest electoral year in 1989 at a European elections. And I was going through all this while um, whenever I was in a room alone, like a hotel room or something, there was this presence, you know. And eventually, um, uh, it got so powerful towards the end of 89 that I was sitting on the side of a bed in a, in a hotel called the Kensington Hilton in London, just down from the BBC headquarters. And I said to this apparently empty room, look, if there's something there, would you please contact me because you'll drive me up the wall. About um, two weeks later, it must have been, I'm uh, with my son, he was a little boy then, He's He's a singer-songwriter now in the mid-20s. Six uh, foot four. Right? Yeah, this is uh, Gaz and Gareth. And um, we, were, we were playing football, and we were going to go down to the town to get some lunch. I live in a, on a seaside resort in a place called the Isle of Wight in England. And as we got down towards this greasy Joe Caff, somebody, some railway worker, stopped me and started talking about football because I was on the television talking about sport and stuff. And then after this conversation was finished, I 
I, I saw that uh, Gareth wasn't there. I knew he would be, be in the news shop just down next to us. So I walked in and um, he was reading the steam train books because he liked steam trains, certainly like me. And uh, I said to him, come on, come on, Gareth, we'll, we'll go and get some lunch. And, and as I turned, my feet wouldn't move. Now, this is a guy who's not been into any of this stuff. He's a television presenter and national spokesman of the Green Party, a journalist, basically. And um, my feet wouldn't move. And I heard, well, it's really a voice, but a, a very strong thought form passed through my mind, which, which didn't seem attached to me. Why would I think it? And it said, go and look at the books on the far side. So um, I went over, and in among the romantic novels was this book with a woman's face on the front. And I picked it up because it was so different to the rest. Turned it over, saw the word psychic. So I read this book in 24 hours and um, I wrote to her, I went to see her. And uh, for, I, what I told her was, I had arthritis, which I have, and maybe her hands-on healing would help. I told her not the real reason I went, which was, would she pick up what the heck this presence is I've been feeling for nearly a year? Well, actually, for a year by then. And... Um, Went to the first couple of times, and it was sort of four times, and she did the hands-on healing, and we had a chat about other dimensions and stuff. All made sense to me, because I'd always rejected religion, and I'd always rejected uh, the scientific view of reality. I just hadn't focused on, what's well, okay, so what's the alternative? And then the third time I went, um, I'm lying there on this medical-type bench thing, and I felt like a spider's web on my face, which really took me aback, because I'd read in her book that... Um, when other dimensions or whatever spirits or whatever you want to use are trying to lock into you, you sometimes feel like a spider's web on your face. Well, funnily enough, I never had before and I never have since, but at that moment, seriously powerful, real tangible. So I'm going, oh my goodness me, what's going on? And she's kind of doing it, doing this, but by me left knee. And I never said a word to her. And then suddenly um, she launches her head back and goes, my God, I've got to close my eyes for this one. This is powerful. And she sees this, um, this figure in her mind, and uh, she says, this, 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 this figure, or whatever she called it, is, is asking me to pass information to you. And take into account, you know, I'm a, I'm a television presenter, presenting the sport and the news at the time. And suddenly uh, she starts saying that um, I, uh, this, this entity, or this projection of consciousness, um, was saying that I was going to go out on a world stage eventually and reveal great secrets. That there was a shadow across the world that had to be lifted, that um, there was going to be a spiritual revolution in my lifetime because of a vibrational change. Um, that's why the first book I wrote was called Truth Vibrations, after that vibrational change. And that um, one line was, one man cannot change the world, but one man can communicate the message that will change the world. I would write five books in three years. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know nothing <laughs> about this stuff. Five books in three years, you must be having a laugh. You know, and I, this is all new to me. Uh, I wrote five books in three years to the month, and I didn't realize I'd done it until I realized it was five and then went back. It was five books to the month of three years um, from that time. The lady David saw was Betty Shine, who was quite a famous British psychic at the time. In The True Vibrations, David recounts several incidents with her which shook his existing view of reality. She was able to tell him that he owned two cats and one of them needed its diet changing due to diarrhoea. David had recently rescued two cats and one of them promptly developed diarrhoea. 
She was also able to identify a particular news article in the paper in his briefcase. I'll play another example of the kind of information David was receiving at the time that he found so convincing. This one is from his trip to Peru. I'll tell you, tell you another, another story that, that leads into that. Um, towards the end of 1990, when I had finished the book Truth Vibrations and it went off to the publisher to be published in the, the spring of, two, of um, 1991, uh, I had this overwhelming feeling, again, the urge, the impulse, to go to Peru. And um, I had no idea why, I just had to go to Peru. So I get on a plane to Peru, not knowing why I'm going there. And, and I'm, I, I land in Lima Airport, and from the moment I landed, amazing synchronistic things happened. Um, but eventually, um, I had this Peruvian guide chap who was taking me around. And funnily enough, the, the first time I met that guy was in Cusco, in the old Inca region. And I went round to his house, because we were going off traveling around Peru from that day. And he's lying on his back and um, asleep. And I walked in because the door was open. And he looked up at me and he said, um, not hello, but do you have any dreams last night? What? I said, well, actually I did. I said, I had a real big, clear, technicolor dream that one of these two front teeth fell out. I can't remember which one. And he said, is your father or grandfather still alive? I said, well, my father is, yeah. I said, why? He said, well, that's usually symbolic of your father or your grandfather dying. I thought, well, this guy's going to be a bunch of laughs for the next three weeks. <laughs> and uh, wow. when I next got a call out of Peru, my father had died back in England. So what do we make of this? People have taken these experiences to indicate David Icke was having mental health problems, perhaps brought on by his strong painkiller use due to the arthritis. I personally have no reason to doubt the reality of his experiences. I've heard enough anecdotes over the years to more than convince me these things happen. Furthermore, there exists laboratory confirmation of mediumship from Dr. Julie Byshaw's experiments. Whatever you think, it's clear they convinced David, and I think it's easy to see why. If you had experiences like that, you may fairly conclude spirits were at play too. The reason I'm labouring at this point is because it's important in understanding what comes next. It's important in understanding why David felt confident to write a book and go on national TV proclaiming the world would be struck by a series of massive earthquakes through the 1990s and Britain would undergo a cultural revolution by 1995. Now, I like Blur and Oasis and look back fondly on the Britpop era, but I wouldn't exactly say it amounted to a cultural revolution. Oh, and New Zealand didn't sink into the sea either. Not until Jacinda Ahern came along anyway. This is consistent with my anecdotal experience regarding spirit communication. You would think it would be either all true or all bunk. The reality seems to be that mediums do provide the most incredible information they have no earthly right to be in possession of, and spew endless nonsense. Spirits, it turns out, lie. David later came to believe this may have been a deliberate deception, intended to embarrass him, so that he could get all the fear of being ridiculed out of his system prior to talking about the reptiles. He had throughout his life been terrified of ridicule. It does seem like a bit of a strange strategy, to totally discredit your spokesman. 
but then I don't have access to the wisdom of the spirit world, so who am I to comment? Another incident in Peru set up a perfect storm for David's now infamous Terry Wogan interview. So I went up the mountain, I couldn't see it from the road, but when I got to the top, there was a circle of standing stones, about waist high, these stones were obviously been there a very, very long time. So I walk into the middle of this circle, and I'm looking across to see Ustani and across to the distant mountains, and it's a, it's a piercing hot Peruvian day, no clouds, not a cloud in the sky, very much like this one today. Um, and I walk to the center of this circle, and suddenly my feet go again, like they did in the new shop, but only seriously more powerful. This, like, they're like magnets pulling my feet to the ground. And I think, oh crikey, I recognize that, here we go. And then I felt like a drill going in the top of my head and through my body, through my feet into the ground, and then another one coming the other way. And then my arms go out at 45 degrees like that. I never made any decision to do it. Hmm. And of course, you, 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 you hold your arms out there, for, you know, a minute, it starts to eight, well, my shoulders do anyway. I, I, it was the best part of an hour, it must be 45 minutes to an hour, my arms were like that. And when it was over, my shoulders were agony, but when it was going on, nothing. And what then started to happen is this energy coming through me, this is um, February 1991, um, got more and more powerful, my body started to shake with it. And the, uh, I had um, two, um, very powerful thought forms has passed through my head, just like in the new shop. The first one said, they'll be talking about this 100 years from now. And I'm thinking, talking about what? And the other one was, it will be over when you feel the rain. I've just described what the weather was like. It will be over when you feel the rain. I mean, you're having a laugh, mate. Um, so what happened then for the next 45 minutes, because time disappeared, there was no time. I worked it out later. Um, was that this energy just kept coming through me. And I kept going in and out of, if you like, awareness, consciousness, like driving a car and you go, crikey, where did the last two miles go? Mm -hmm. One of these times when I came back to kind of awareness, I noticed that over the distant mountains there was a light gray mist. And I kind of, as I watched it, it got darker and darker very quickly. And I realized it was pouring with rain over the distant mountains. And over the next little while, however long it was, I watched this storm come out of the mountains. And people, whether, whether people talk about a, you know, a, a weather front, well, this was a straight line. The cloud was a straight line. I've described it many times as like drawing the, drawing the uh, curtains across the sky. And I, this thing's coming towards me. And as it got closer, the sun's gone, it's been covered, and all the clouds are billowing. And I'm seeing faces in the clouds. It didn't make any sense to me, but I saw faces in the clouds. And then, it's a wall of rain. I'm watching it coming towards me. And by this time, I'm hanging on, you know, with this thing coming through, this energy coming through me. And eventually it hits me. Torrential rain. And everything stopped. And that's when I staggered forward and my, my shoulders were agony and all the rest of it. Um, and many other things happened. But when I came back to England after that, as I said earlier, my, my book was published uh, in the early part of 1991, which is, you know, a matter of a very short time after this um, experience. And when I look back now, um, it was like, you know, if you've got a, a dam and it's holding water back, 
Well, the water is calm, right? Because that's its, that's its natural state in that situation, if you like. But when the dam bursts, before a new balance is found um, after the dam bursts, all hell breaks loose mm -hmm. in the water, right? As it's trying to go from one state to another. Yep. When I look back, what happened to me on that mound? It was like um, the waters of my mind bursting. And for three months, I didn't know what planet I was on, right? In the middle of this, my book came out. Um, and I went on the biggest um, chat show, live chat show in Britain at the time. It's called The Wogan Show. Um, in a complete bloody daze about what was happening to me. And it had all been in the national papers that basically I'd gone crazy. And um, I was sitting in this chair in the chat show um, and the audience were laughing within a minute, two minutes. And they basically laughed for, I think I must have been on about 15, 17, 16, 17 minutes. And from that moment on, because um, I was talking about what was happening to me, except I didn't understand what was happening to me. Uh, and what that did was trigger the most extraordinary levels of ridicule. However you interpret this, it's clear David was going for a powerful, psycho-spiritually transformative experience. Not a time any of us would want to go on national TV. Well now, let me get this story right. The press claim that you claim to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, you see, the thing is that uh, you see, it's, quite, it's quite funny, really. You know, 2,000 years ago, had a guy called Jesus sat here and said these same things, you would still be laughing. It's really, really funny that we've not really moved on that much. Um, there have been many missions, if you like, over the last 12,000 years to try to free the earth from control by an, a force that is working against the Godhead. If I am given information from beings who have proved to be perfectly accurate day after day after day and things they've told, told, told us are going to happen and they happen. They told you Saddam Hussein was dead and he's That's not. That's right. He's, yes, he is. Well, he, well, I watched his birthday party on the television yesterday. All I, can, all I can say to you is all that glitters is not gold. Hang about and watch and wait. But I'll tell, say two things to watch for and let the alarm bells go if they happen. One is if they suddenly announce he is dead now, therefore they don't have to explain the past and, and what's happened over the last few weeks and the fact that he's been dead for many weeks. And secondly, if they say we've done a deal, he's gone into exile and part of the deal is not to name the country he has gone to, therefore disappear Saddam, let the alarm bells ring. But those two things are likely to happen and you will be saying, oh well he's been dead for some time. But we saw him on the television yesterday yeah. uh, celebrating his birthday. All that glitters is not gold. I Just see. hang about yeah. and wait. I see. Well, now what about, what about eruption? When may we expect tidal waves, eruptions, earthquakes? Well. Because of the nature of the way the Earth has been treated over a long period of time, a tremendous amount of energy has built up within the Earth that cannot get out. If it doesn't get out, bang. So this is going to be released in a controlled manner, as controlled as possible, through earthquakes, through volcanoes and such like. If they don't happen, this is not punishment, if they don't happen, there is no Earth. 
Because of the way the Earth's been treated, the Earth is also extremely, extremely weak. And it's in the situation now where it cannot function by itself as an independent, independent entity. It is in, in effect on a life support machine already. Now the question is, it's a bit like a patient where they say the patient needs this operation to survive, but is the patient strong enough to take the operation? And that is the point that the Earth is at now. When these things happen... As they will. As they will, my goodness, they will. When is the, when is the it, first thing going to happen? Well, it will certainly happen this year. The first sequence will begin this year. Was it, was it a great shock for you to discover this at 38? Well, I, th I think the... <laughs> I think, the word, I think the word is gobsmacked. But again, again, you know the best way of removing negativity is to laugh and be joyous. So I'm delighted that there's so much laughter in the audience tonight. But no, um, it's a... But just let, just let me, just let me say this. They're laughing at you. They're not laughing with you. Fine. OK, so there's the great train wreck. A lot of what David was saying made sense about violence in the world emanating from our thought patterns. Obviously, the predictions made him seem mad, more so as the years went by. But the thing that was never going to go down well anywhere, but especially not in Britain, was for David to assign this special role to himself as being a Christ-like figure come to save the rest of us. Only the Blues Brothers can get away with declaring they're on a mission from God. To me, David also sounds a little wooden in this interview. It's like he's taken in too much information too quickly and is simply regurgitating it. It lacks the down-to-earth authenticity present in his later speaking. I also find the truth vibrations comes across like this as a book. It's powerful to listen to David talk about the liberating effect the Wogan experience had on him, irrespective of whether spirits planned it that way or not. It's fascinating what happens when we free ourselves from all fear of what other people think of us. In this way, David Icke drank deeply of a liberation few of us will ever even taste. Imagine what your life would be if you were liberated from all concern over other people's opinions. Wow. There could be a shadow side to this too, though. Concern over reputation also prevents us from saying outrageous things. That we care about other people's reactions inspires us to remain accurate in what we say. The upside of removing that is the freedom to go on stage and talk about shape-shifting reptilians. The downside could be the freedom to go on stage and talk about shape-shifting reptilians. The rest of the Truth Vibrations is largely an account of David's journeys around Britain placing healing stones on ley lines. I'll skip over that part and finish this episode with a reference to Plato's allegory of the cave. In the cave, prisoners are chained up looking at shadows on the walls and taking them to be reality. One day, one prisoner escapes to the outside world. He finds the light blinding and it takes his eyes much time to adjust. Eventually, he comes to see clearly and recognises that this is the real world. The world he had taken to be real his whole life consisted merely of the shadows this one projects. Upon his returning to the cave, his eyes no longer function in the dark. He fumbles around looking a fool, clearly unable to function. At the same time, he's proclaiming highfalutin ideas of a world beyond this one, whilst telling everyone they're caught in some sort of an illusion. Is it any wonder his fellow cave dwellers take him to be mad? 
Did David Icke step into the world outside of our cave? Did he return with a messiah complex, muttering about earthquakes because the light had blinded him? Or is he just a madman? That's what we were all left to decide. Thank you for listening. Next time we'll take a look at David's 1993 book, Healing the World. <laughs>